talk to a few of you already who have moved here for the summer and have come to check us out or, or are back for the summer, who were here last summer, and we're just excited to have you uh, with us again. It's, I don't know about the rest of you, it's really encouraging to walk around town lately and actually see people everywhere again, and people coming back, and opportunities to, to minister and care for, and so it's just a, a wonderful, wonderful thing. So we are happy that you're here with us this morning. Uh, if you want to turn to Daniel chapter 9, we're going to continue our study through Daniel, through this kind of interesting section about kind of dreams and visions, and this one is a little bit unique in the midst of chapter 7 and 8, and then 10 to 12 uh, are, are more kind of the standard kind of vision. Here we're going to look at a prayer that Daniel gives and then a response that God gives, uh, not in a, in a dream or a vision as such, but the the angel Gabriel comes up to Daniel and, and shares with him probably the most difficult section in all of Scripture. And so we're only going to talk about that for a few minutes. But we're going to talk, we are going to talk about it for a few minutes. But the actual bulk of the message is going to be verses, nine to, or verses 1 to 19. Not, not because the, the hard part is difficult, but because the hard part is uncertain. We will talk about that. But these first verses, I think we can learn so much uh, in our response to God. The, many commentators talk about this prayer as the most beautiful and complete prayer in all of Scripture and one that all believers should model their life after. And so if you haven't read this prayer in a while, uh, then I encourage you as we read it, consider it, and, and let it kind of sink into your own heart and your own mind. So let's just, with that said, let's just read these first verses uh, together. Chapter 9. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ah. Oh, I knew I was going to screw that up. I practiced like 30 times this morning. Ahasuerus, by descent, a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the, book, the, in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer, and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rulers. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of, Is of Jerusalem, and to all Israel. Those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord, our God, belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your laws and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice, and the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. 
As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought yourself who brought your, your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned and we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my pleas before the Lord, my God, for the holy hill of of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then, for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moats, But in a troubled time, and after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war, desolation. Excuse me, desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half a week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So you can see those last few verses being like, okay, where are we going to go here? How are we going to deal with that? And and we will talk about that because this is what we do is we study through Scripture in, in this church. We take a book and we study it through. And so that means when we have difficult texts like that, we can't ignore it. We have to deal with it. And, And we're going to. But I think it's important that we understand the prayer and learn from the prayer before we get into that. So the first thing that's really of interest, and you got to be really nerdy to see this, but it's a good practice to get into, is when you're reading Scripture real carefully, what you'll notice is, and we've talked about this before, but when you read through the Old Testament and you see the word Lord where all the letters are capitalized, what does that mean? Correct. 
right? So this is God's covenantal name with his people. In the book of Daniel, the word Lord is never all in capitals except in this chapter. It's the only time in all of the Old Testament that that occurs like that. And so if you're reading really closely, by the time you're kind of in chapter 2, 3, 4, and you're like, man, I'm I'm not seeing the name of Yahweh here. This is very interesting, and of course, they're in exile. They're in Babylon and then conquered by Medo-Persia, conquered by, you know, etc., as we go in these visions that we looked at. But so this, this lack of covenant relationship is gone, and that's very intentional for Daniel. But then in chapter 9, when he prays and he calls out to the Lord, he calls on his covenant faithfulness to restore his people. And suddenly he uses that term Yahweh again. And so it's really, really interesting and really important. I think it's a very small detail, but something that if we read really intentionally, we will be able to see, even though we don't speak, uh, those of us who don't speak Hebrew, we can see it here in the scripture. So what Daniel sees here is as we do these first two verses, Daniel's not the typical Old Testament prophet. The typical Old Testament prophet was a person on behalf of the nation who was kind of God's mouthpiece to give God's word to the people. Ultimately, it was all about repentance, turning towards God, and that that restoration of relationship would continue. But Daniel is different. It's found in the prophets, and he's considered a prophet by many, but he, again, is not on behalf of the people. He works for the king of Babylon and then the king of Medo-Persia. And so Daniel uh, is, is sitting here, it says, studying through particularly the book of Jeremiah. He's reading through what the prophet wrote to him. And I'm sure this is something he read many times. I'm sure the Jewish people read this over and over. But you can see it here that he says, in the first year, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of desolation of Jerusalem. 70 years. So if you look in Jeremiah 25, 11, it says this, the whole land shall become a ruin and a waste and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Pretty clear. Now, the question is, is this a literal 70 years or is this figurative? Sevens and tens all through the Old Testament have significance and meaning, sometimes are not always literal. And so we need to understand that. So when, when he reads that, He's saying he perceives that this could be the plan of God. I think that's really, really important that he understands that, that he doesn't just presume. We've talked about this lots, but if you remember when Jesus comes to the world as the Messiah, as the revealed Messiah of the Old Testament, many people look at him and say, no, you couldn't be the Messiah because the Messiah looks like this. And then they wrote, here's Here's, or they talked about the passages, you're going to conquer, you're going you're to redeem the whole world, you're going to serve as king, and, and he did all those things, and he's going to do all those things, but not in the way that they expected. And so Daniel here is holding this verse in Jeremiah open-handed, recognizing that is this a literal thing, is this what you were saying, that when we went into Babylon it would be 70 years and then we would be freed? Well, he's not sure, and so what does he do? Well, the thing that we should always do, verse 3. Turn my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer, and please for mercy with fasting and with sackcloth and with ashes. I think this is something many of us struggle with. Daniel's been talking all throughout these first few chapters about God's sovereignty. He is in control. 
that none of these things have happened because, and caught God by surprise, is all of this is in there. And Jeremiah makes this very clear. In fact, just a few verses before verse 11 in chapter 25, uh, God names, well, Jeremiah names through the voice of God, uh, that Nebuchadnezzar is actually going to be the one to come and conquer and take them off into exile. And of course, that actually literally happened to Daniel. And so God is in control. God is fully sovereign. God knows everything that's happening. And so the question that we may struggle with sometimes is, so why bother even praying? If it's just going to happen, if God has a plan, if God has will, why bother praying? Why not simply, uh, Daniel, in this setting, read this and go, seven years, it's going to come. Here it is. It's done. I'm just going to eagerly anticipate that. I don't really have a really good answer for that, to be honest with you, except for this. Prayer as a means, the purpose of prayer is what? Communion with God. He's not a genie that we bring our requests to, he answers, and we move on. He's the creator of the universe that wants to be in personal relationship with us. And so we commune with him. And we talk with him. And this is why sometimes you see in the book of Psalms, David reminding God of his promises over and over and over. Not because he's worried that God's going to forget to be faithful. But because he's having conversation with him. God, you, you promised that this would happen. So please, in your mercy and in your faithfulness, would you, would you be faithful to what you have said to us? I think often those are the prayers we cry out to God. Not because we don't trust God, but because the situation is so overwhelming, we don't know what to say or what to do. So Daniel begins to pray and call out to God. But what's crazy about this prayer, and I hope you noticed it, but perhaps you didn't. I really kind of fumbled through some of those words, so maybe that was distracting. I apologize for that. But I hope what we see is that Daniel, first eight chapters of Daniel, and we said this in, I think, the very first sermon, Daniel's one of the only biblical characters that we read about that his flaws are not pointed out to us. That's not to say he's perfect. But that's to say he is faithful. Daniel is one of these amazing biblical characters that every time the opportunity comes, he is faithful to God no matter what it costs, whether that costs his life or not. And so when Daniel reads this and he goes, okay, it seems to me seven years are coming up, so he pleads with God, but notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't pray for those stupid Israelites who would not follow God, but I was good and I did follow God. He doesn't do that. But from a human perspective, we could really be sympathetic if he did, right? Isn't that what we do so often? We look at it and we go, all these other people, they just won't listen. They won't do what's right. And, and, and we're really good at externally looking at other people's situations and saying, if, if you had only done this, it would have worked out good for you. But we're blind to our own issues, our own challenges, our own lack of trust in God. Well, Daniel, you see all through this in verse 5, he says, we, we have sinned against you. We have turned aside from your commandments. We have left your rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets. In verse 8, he says, to us belong open shame. We have sinned against you. We have rebelled against you. All Israel has refused to obey your voice. He lumps himself in there with everybody, recognizing that he is not above the nation of Israel. He's not this great person who did everything right and everyone else did everything wrong. 
And I think this is so, so very important for us to do because it can be so easy for us to go, I've done everything right, I've been good. God, why have you brought this situation on me when I was faithful and they weren't? Or on the flip side, when you've watched people not be faithful and seemingly come into blessings and you have been faithful, but you haven't had those blessings. It's so easy to look at this and to go, God, this, this isn't how this works. Well, actually, actually it is how it works is God's blessing isn't completely dependent on how faithful or unfaithful you are. And that's actually great news, isn't it? God's covenantal promises are to the nation of Israel essentially this. No matter how wicked you are and how much you rebel and how often you turn your face from me, I will never turn my face from you. Ultimately being fulfilled through the promise of Jesus Christ coming. Now, Randy read a, a commandment in Deuteronomy where he said, this is the first commandment to promise, honor your father and mother so that what? So that it will go well with you and you will live in the land long. How long did they live in the land? Not very. Consequences came with their rebellion, with their refusal to follow after God and to do what was right and good. And so there was constantly consequence coming, but yet God would continue to show mercy and grace. And Daniel even says, even in the midst of all this exile, you are righteous in this because he's looking at this saying, even in that, you are good and you're trying to reveal yourself to us that we would turn to you. Is that the view that we have of God? Perhaps we could say it this way. Do I wake up in the morning and recognize that I need the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ just as much as anybody else that I encounter that day? Or do I look at some people and go, man, I hope they encounter God's grace today because they really need it. Somehow separating ourselves from that as if I don't need it as much. Daniel acknowledges that despite the fact that relatively speaking, as we read through the book of Daniel, he has been faithful. He says no better. Our nation, me, I have turned from you. And I have broken your commandments. And I have broken your statutes. And I haven't followed after you. Daniel is calling out on behalf of the nation. And I think more often than not, we're far too internally focused than less externally. This reminded me of something in 2 Kings. Hezekiah, who... and. I need to clarify this. Hezekiah was one of the best kings that Judah ever had. He was one of the most God-honoring and God-fearing kings. He did wonderful, wonderful things. And in fact, there's a verse in Hezekiah that says to the effect that there, were, there was no one like him as far as kings go. And yet, in a moment of pride and arrogance, he allowed some people kind of in to see all of his possessions with this sense of like, look how much I have. And we read in chapter 20 of 2 Kings, verses 17 and 18, it says this, Behold, this is God speaking uh, through Isaiah, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up to this day shall be carried off to where? Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Some of your own sons who shall be born to you shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Of course, this happened very shortly thereafter. Hezekiah's response is what's most shocking in verse 19. He says this, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, why not if there will be peace and security in my days? 
Isn't that a condemning sentence right there? Literally going, okay, as long as it's fine in my lifetime, I don't care what happens to the generations coming after me. He's just been told that even his own family are going to be off to serve in the palace, and they're not even going to be a nation any longer. And he goes, that's okay, it's good, because it won't happen to me. Is that the way that so often we think our troubles, our issues, we're so consumed with ourselves? I probably shouldn't admit this, but this happened to me very, very recently. When we were in South Africa, we had a, just a wonderful, wonderful trip, and we came home, and a few days later, we read about the floods that happened, and we saw some of the videos, and they were all right exactly where we were. And cars were being washed down the road right where we were driving and all these things. And my first thought was, I'm so glad we came home when we did. My first thought wasn't all these people who are losing homes and property that are not going to have a way to feed their families. My first thought, I'm so glad we came home. So often our hearts are filled with that kind of an attitude. And what we learn from Daniel here is know we're going to subject ourselves alongside everybody else, recognizing that any mercy or grace that I am given is a gift of God. I deserve none of it, and I'm desperate for it, same as every other person. Commentator Stephen Miller writes this about this prayer. He says, this is a model for believers today as they approach God. After a brief introduction, it proceeds with adoration of the Lord followed by confession of personal and national sin, and concludes with his petition. This is the proper order, for only after the Lord is praised and sin is confessed is the believer qualified to offer requests to the holy God. As I came across that quote, it was Wednesday afternoon, and we had just had our men's group talking about the Lord's Prayer. We were talking about how we need to center our hearts first on God before we get into any kind of requests or our own troubles or our own issues. And, and I was convicted of that, and then when I read this, I was convicted again, reminding how often do our prayers immediately go to what we need? God, this situation is just crazy. I, I need you to intervene here. And that's true, and that's good. We should call out to that. But do we forget to whom we're bowing our hearts to and calling out and asking for help from. Francis Chan talks about whenever he prays, he considers uh, Revelation 4 in the throne room of God and, and reading through those verses and the brilliance that John sees and God exalted on his throne. And he says, would you just walk right in and say, God, I need, I need, I need? Or would you worship first? And would you confess that you don't even deserve to be in that place with God? And then once you've done those things, then calling out and asking, God, here's what I need. You know, Jesus teaches us to ask for what we need in the Lord's Prayer, certainly. But first, it's about coming and presenting ourselves prostrate before a holy God who loves us and that we deserve none of that love and that grace. But yet he offers it so freely. So worship and confession need to be a huge part of our prayer life. I think Paul understood this in, in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He refers to himself um, as the chief of sinners. Now, some people kind of argue, well, he's looking back at his life and how much he persecuted the church, and he's not saying that he is the chief of sinners now, but he was the chief of sinners then. But I think if you read those verses in context, that's a real big cop-out. I think what he's simply doing is this, I do not deserve the grace and mercy of God. Yes, he's probably looking back on his life and seeing all that he has done and how it 
humanly disqualifies him. But isn't that the whole point of God's mercy and grace? Is that no matter who you are, where you're from, what you've done, anything in your past, anything in your present, no matter any of those things, God says, I want to be in relationship with you because I love you. I want to be with you. It's God's mercy and it's God's grace. And and that's what Daniel is crying out to here for a mercy that by definition is not deserved. In verse 16, we kind of reach the climax of this prayer. And here's what's really interesting. What does Daniel base his prayer on? Not the righteousness of of him, right? Not saying, well, can I pray on behalf of the people because I've been real good? No, it's not on the fact that the nation is real sorry and repentant and and are going to follow after him. We've seen how that cycle works in the Old Testament and how it continues to work. No, he says he appeals to God for his own righteous acts. Because of the name of God. This is the same thing that that Moses does. Moses is up on the mountain uh, with God receiving the Ten Commandments. And and what are the people doing down below? Melting all their metal into a golden calf to worship it and saying, Thank you, golden calf, for taking us out of the land of Egypt. And Moses comes down and and breaks the Ten Commandments. And and he goes back up to speak with God. And God says, I'm just going to destroy this whole nation. Says they're, the ESV translates it, they're a stiff-necked people. They just, they don't get it. And they won't follow after me. Well, Moses does the same thing and he pleads with God and he says, God, because of your name, because of your righteous acts, because of your faithfulness, because of your covenant, please don't wipe them out. That's how we ought to pray. Not, God, I was really good this week, so please let this happen in my life. God, for your name's sake, would you receive honor and glory in this situation? Whatever that looks like. Daniel, in this sense, seems to think that the end of the seven years is coming and that, that they are going to be let out of exile. But even with that, God, please forgive us. We don't deserve your mercy. But please, if this is your prophecy, then let your faithfulness lead us to this point. He doesn't presume that just because God said something, it's going to happen, though he also does believe that just because God said something, it's going to happen. It's kind of a weird way to say that. He's not relying, going, ah, it's fine, it'll all go well. He says, Lord, please forgive me. And I appeal to you for mercy because of your steadfastness and your faithfulness. And so God hears, and and verse 20 is interesting, while I was still speaking and praying, while he was still in prayer and communion with God, God sends Gabriel to him to give him the answer to this 70 years and is this up. So this is where it gets really complicated. And I'm going to do my best to explain this as best as I can without getting sidetracked. I've said that a lot the last number of weeks. Is some of these visions are real easy to be like, man, I don't understand this little bit. And we get consumed into that. And we got to go, I got to understand that. I want to know exactly when these dates are and, and how the math works. And, and can we figure out when the end of the world is going to be? I'm going to clarify again why we shouldn't do that at the end. But we need to guard our hearts from that because this gets really, really strange. Becca, could you throw the slide up? That's right, we're moving up in the world. We've created slides. All right, here we go. 
Verse 24 says 70 weeks, or some of your translations will say 77s. Commentators kind of are all in agreement here. This is uh, a period of time that's somewhere in this idea of like 490 years. But, But before we get there, we need to look at this. Actually, before we even look at this, you can see it. But let me just say this. What God's trying to do here, no, let me back up even further. 70 years is ending this year that Daniel's speaking to God, that he's praying to God. And at the end of those 70 years, the king releases, Cyrus releases the Jewish people to be free to go back to Jerusalem, some of them. And that's where Ezra and Nehemiah are. And you can read about Ezra and Nehemiah. And they go back and they restore the temple and they build the walls and all those things. But, but not the whole nation. And so this is one of those, there's a partial fulfilling of prophecy, but God's purpose is far greater than this. It's, it's, it's simply this. What he's going to say to Daniel here, while these seven years of exile are nearing a completion, they haven't in any way atoned for sin of the nation of Israel. And so there's a lot more coming. And ultimately, all of this is going to point to, if Becca, if you can just scroll across just for a second here, is the Messiah coming. Ultimately, all of it points there to say, at one point in the future, there is going to be someone who comes, namely Jesus the Messiah, who comes and he makes atonement for our sins so that our sin is actually forgiven in some real, tangible way and that we can now live with the assurance of salvation. That's what it's all pointing to. And so while Daniel's pleading, would you please return us so that Jerusalem can be built again? And and he's going to clarify that that's not actually my purpose. I'm going to send some of you back because I promised that that exile period would end. But the sin hasn't actually been dealt with yet. And so he's opening Daniel's eyes to a bigger picture than just simply these 70 year thing. And so these 70 weeks as we look here, there's kind of four basic views. So if you can just scroll left just a little bit there. A little more. There we go. There's four basic views. Maccabean view, dispensational view, preterist view, covenantal view. I'm going to argue this. I'm not even going to tell you which one I hold because I don't think it matters. That was only said a little bit in jest. Up at the top, you see Daniel 1.1, exile 605. That's when the nation goes off. 586, the complete fall of Jerusalem. The decree of Cyrus and Ezra 1 that the people can go back is at the end of years of seven years of captivity. In Ezra 7, there's the decree of Artaxerxes that's important. Uh, and 445, uh, another one. In 164, we talked about this either last week or I think it was last week, uh, Judas Maccabeus cleanses the temple and Antiochus uh, dies, ultimately culminating in the Messiah coming. In, 70 AD, Jerusalem and the temple completely destroyed and sacrifices over. And then we have the future, whether we hold or not to the rapture, and then the second coming of Christ, which we all should hold to. And so you see here that in these views, there's different ways to kind of make sure these seven weeks and 62 weeks and the 70th week and seven years of captivity and all these things. There's, there's ways that commentators use to try and find all these little pieces of the Old Testament to try and make some kind of chronology of the events of what this is going to look like. And that's fine. That's for people that are a lot smarter than I. Um, 
Right now I'm reading a book for seminary uh, in June that is 40 questions about the end times. And so I'm coming across some of these things. And it's interesting to see all these different views. And, and if you get really hung up, well, the first one is kind of misses the point because it stops short of the Messiah. But the other three views, as you kind of think about them, there's all kinds of support to back that. And if you really get into, like, I'm going to read about the the dispensational view, by the end of the reading of that, you'll be like, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what's going to happen. And in fact, uh, Nick is going to come next week and talk a little bit about that. But the point being is there are many smarter than I scholars and commentators who hold to various views of these or a combination thereof, some of them. And so we need to not get so hung up on going, oh, I got to figure out these dates and I got to make them make exact sense. And this is why I put the dates up at the top there for us is because depending on who you read, where does the seven years of captivity start? Does it start at 605 when they went off into exile or does it start with the fall of Jerusalem in 586 when the temple actually was destroyed? And so there's no kind of consensus about these things. And in the midst of this, you can fall down the rabbit hole and get nowhere real fast and yet you can spend years of your life here going which view is the best how should i hold this what's going to happen is the rapture is it pre-trib is it mid-trib is it post-trib and and i don't think any of those things matter i think god no i i know that god knows his plan i don't think it's that important for us to know this the reason that i say this is this and I've referenced this, but I don't think I've read it yet. Matthew 24, 36, it says this. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. The people, the disciples of Jesus are with him, and Jesus is starting to talk to them about the end times. And, and we view that as the end times, meaning, you know, from from Jesus' death and resurrection till now, is we're in those last days. And the biblical writers of the New Testament use that vernacular. We're in the last days. How long that lasts for, none of us know. And that's Jesus' point with the disciples is he goes, don't bother trying to figure that out because nobody knows. The angels in heaven don't know. Jesus says at that moment, right as he's on the earth, I don't even know. The Father alone knows. The disciples don't seem to quite get it because just a few short weeks later, we have Jesus' death, his resurrection, his ascension, that, that section of Scripture. And when Jesus rises from the dead and appears to his disciples in Acts 1-6, they say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? What's their focus on? They're still focused on this idea of free Israel from captivity. The Roman oppression that exists, that's their end goal. That's still the way that they're thinking. And Jesus responds by saying, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus clarifies again to them saying, no, no, don't focus on seasons and times. Those things are fixed by God's authority. He's got them. Trust them. The important thing is that you are going to receive the Holy Spirit so that you can now go out and be an effective witness to the world around you for the name of Jesus. And I don't think we're a very effective witness 
if we're so focused on figuring out that end time that we forget to open our eyes and look around and see all the ways in which God is calling us to help our community, to serve those in need, to love those who don't feel loved, to those who need tangible help, physical help, spiritual help, emotional help, whatever it might be, is that's Jesus' focus is I'm going to give you power to be able to do those things so that Jesus would be glorified, so that people would see what we do. I was reading a book by Don Howell Jr. on servant leadership last week, or last two weeks, and he says this about this passage. Just before Jesus' ascension, the apostles inquired if now at last he would usher the nation of Israel into the kingdom of glory. The Lord neither corrected or affirmed their implications of the question. They must, he countered, resist the temptation to speculate on the finer points of eschatology and leave the times and seasons to his sovereign disposition. Their task is to engage in an ever-expanding concentric circles of witness from their present neighborhood to the ends of the earth. The promise of his personal and visible return to earth was the angel's words that rang in their ears as he disappeared from their sight. This one sentence just really, really stuck to me. They must resist the temptation to speculate on the finer points of eschatology and leave the times and seasons to his sovereign disposition. And then the second one as well. Their task is to engage in an ever-expanding concentric circles of witness from their present neighborhood to the ends of the world. That's literally what we're being told. Very plainly and very clearly, and yet we really want to know the end time stuff. Which view should I hold? When does this come? Am I going to be here when the tribulation is here? Or am I going to be raptured up in it? What does this look like? And, and there's times and places for those conversations, but those conversations should happen long after the conversations of God. What do you want me to do and how do you want me to live and how do you want me to be faithful in the world that I find myself today? How can I serve those around me? How can I love and care for those who are in need? And Jesus said it very plainly, don't worry, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit so that you're supernaturally equipped to do that. What are we not going to be supernaturally equipped for? End times. We don't know. We don't. And I think the speculating in that focuses so much of our attention there that we become blind to the issues that are in the world around us and we forget that God has called us to live here with purpose and meaning that others would know who Jesus is. Far more important that we have Christian witness with our friends and with our family and our co-workers than that we know what day the end is coming. Far more meaningful, far more impacting. And I would argue, what would it actually help us if we knew when the end was? What would it actually mean if we had the, that last date? I don't think it would be very positive. I think God in his own authority recognized that and went, I'm not going to let them know but I am going to equip them for the here and now. And so, yes, there's verses that we need to wrestle through that are difficult about these 70 weeks and and figuring out what's happening, but notice the point that God's trying to tell Daniel. Daniel, 70 years are almost up, and I am going to free some to go back. But the plan of salvation has not been worked out yet, or not been fulfilled yet. And so until somebody comes, namely Jesus, who is coming, and there will be times and there will be seasons of, and we've looked at this the last number of weeks in some of these other visions, there will be times of persecution and pain and heartache, and there will be times where the Jewish nation seems to have nothing, and they're not even uh, 
a nation and there's going to be times where they're restored and there's going to be times where there's hope and there's going to be times where they have no hope and et cetera, et cetera, and just keeps going. And he's saying to Daniel, but I am going to pay through the blood of Jesus, sin will be paid for. Atonement is coming. Restoration spiritually is coming and that's God's purpose and that's God's plan. He's not trying to tell Daniel in the book of Revelation. He's not trying to tell John, here's exactly what this looks like. He's providing us hope that in the midst of our pain and our hurt and our suffering and our uncertainty, and I said this over and over last week, that God wins. And so we can trust that. So back to the beginning. Daniel crying out to God and us for the same. See, in this prayer, there's this confusing quandary for us as God holds justice and he holds mercy in his hands and he alone knows how to divvy those out proper proportions. We don't. We talk about this lots. When we have wronged somebody else, we desperately want mercy, but when somebody else has wronged us, we desperately want justice. How do we hold those? How do we know when to be just and when to not? If you think about it as as a parent kind of analogy, is if all you do is show mercy and grace to your kids, what do they learn? Not very much. If all you do is hold justice, what do they learn? Not very much. There are moments as a parent where you have to decide there there needs to be grace here. There There needs to be mercy given where it's not deserved. I need to step in and I gotta take the brunt of the consequences of this for my family. But there's other times where you have to step out and you have to say, no, my my child has to learn from the consequences of their behavior. They have to recognize that if they live this way and make these choices, these are the implications that happen. And so we as, as parents, we know how to do that very imperfectly. But we have a God in heaven who holds justice and mercy in both of his hands and he evens it out as much as or as necessary as we require. And he knows what we need. And so we can trust in that. And so my prayer for you as we read a prayer like this is that when we spend time in prayer, whenever that is, if you have a regular kind of prayer routine, that the next time that you sit down, that you don't just immediately jump to, God, I need, God, I need. That we would thank God for who he is. That we would thank him that he's in control even when we might want to be. That he has plans and purpose that we can trust him. That his timing is perfect and that ours is imperfect. And when catastrophe and uncertainty and disease and illness and health issues and all those things happen, and we go, what could you possibly be doing, God? We can go, God, I will trust you because you have never not been faithful. And then as we worship God, then we confess And we humble ourselves and we put ourselves on the same playing field as everybody else around us. That we don't try to elevate ourselves and think, I don't need quite as much grace as the person next to me. After all, I don't make nearly as many dumb decisions as they do. Right? Like that's how we think so often. Rather to say, God, I desperately need your mercy and your grace because I don't have even close to what it takes. But praise the Lord that in the book of James, James reminds us that if you need wisdom, what do you have to do? Just ask. Because God is a generous Father who wants to give you wisdom. 
And so when you come through, I don't know what to do. God, help me rather pray for wisdom. God, would you teach me how to live in a way that honors you so that people can see it? Don't, don't just take me out of the troubles and the problems that I have, but help me honor you in the troubles and the problems that I have. That'll have far more meaning and a lasting impact than God just rescue me real quick right now. I think that's the number one reason why when we become a Christian, we don't just get raptured to heaven in that moment. Because God goes, I got purpose for you now. You're going to be my witnesses in, in this case in Banff, Canmore, Bow Valley, Canada, the world. So know as you leave today that you are loved by a God who has purpose and meaning for you. And he wants you to be in relationship with him so that others can come to relationship with him, so that others can come to relationship with him, so that the kingdom can grow and grow and grow. So that when we're with Christ in eternity, that that is a big, big family. Let's pray. God, thank you for a chapter like this in the Bible that is, is really interesting in that the first majority of those verses are, are very practical. They show us and teach us how to pray. They remind us that you are in control. And, and as Daniel says, you are righteous in all that you do, even when it doesn't make sense to us. But then also in the last verses, some difficult stuff to interpret. But I pray that we wouldn't try and seek those little details that we don't need to know, but that we would see what is this passage trying to teach us. In this case, namely, that you were telling Daniel, sin will be paid for one day. That this seven-year exile, this is, just, this is just a part, this is just a small thing, but this exile does not forgive sin. The same way that the old covenant, that sacrificial system, didn't actually forgive sin in any meaningful way. It was a promise and it was pointing to something greater, that Jesus would come, that Jesus would offer his life up in our place, that his blood would atone for our sins. And while Daniel looked forward to that, we can look back and remind ourselves, sin is paid for. And as the disciples are reminded by Jesus that we have now been given the Holy Spirit and we are equipped to do the work that you have called us to do till Jesus comes again. And so may that be where our focus is. May the times and the seasons and the 70s and the weeks and all those things, may they just be small little blips. And may our focus and trust remain that you have things in control because you are sovereign and that you have equipped us for what we need to face today. So be with us today. Give us opportunities to share with people, to show them mercy and grace, and, and yet show them also the justice of God. And that we would do those, or that we would hold those in our hands in a represent, representative way that shows that you are a good God who knows how to do all things. God, we love you. We thank you. Go with us now. Amen. If you're visiting again, just a 
we're, we're happy to have you. We'd love to chat with you over there by the kitchen where all the snacks are that have been brought and provided for us. We'd love to just get to know you a little. If you've moved to the community and you have questions, come find us. Uh, we'd love to help you. And again, if you're a mother, and that's okay if you're visiting too and you're a mother, that's great, is I'm going to run to the back where my wife is and there's the flowers and the gift cards and we'll give those to you. And we just pray that you have a, a wonderful day, that you are encouraged and that you feel valued. And so just one last time, happy Mother's Day to all of you.